Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable uh, $199 online GRE course that includes everything you need to ace your GRE. A full textbook, tons of GRE questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm, and full-length practice exams that mimic the real GRE exam. You can try it out for free at Achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off when you check out. And today on the show, we brought back Charles Bibelos, and Charles would love for you to just give a quick intro of yourself as well. Sure. My name is Charles Bibelos. I run a little tutoring company called GMAT Ninja. We do GMAT, GRE, uh, Executive Assessment, and LSAT tutoring. Um, and I've been tutoring GRE for more than 20 years. And uh, somewhere during that 20 years, I uh, decided that it would be a good idea to get a PhD in education policy. I only finished half that PhD. But kind of the interest and <laughs> curiosity in PhD admissions kind of remained because it works very, very differently from really admissions for any other anything else in higher ed. So it's one of those things that I think is really interesting. And I wished I'd known a little more about it before I applied for my PhD about 10 years ago. Yeah. So that's I'm excited to do this episode because I feel like this is something that doesn't maybe get like mainstream attention, quote unquote, mainstream in the context of our little GRE corner of the world. Uh, but I think that, yeah, just I'd love to hear from you kind of more about the PhD admission process and the lessons you learned, both going through it and also being a PhD. Is it candidate? Is that the right word? Or You know, it's funny. Academia has all these funny terms for things that at, at yeah. least in, in education at, at the university I went to, you were supposed to call yourself a PhD student until you passed your comprehensive exams in your third year. And then after that, you could call yourself a PhD candidate. Oh, okay. So PhD student then. Um, yeah. And and then, uh, and then also obviously how the GRE ties into it all. So that all sounds great. But yeah, if you just want to kick us off with kind of, you know, the intro and talking about PhD admissions. Yeah. I think for most people and, and nearly all of my friends who, who went down the same road in one field or another of, of applying for a PhD program, we kind of imagine it to be a lot like undergraduate admissions where it's okay, we're going to submit our test scores and our essays and our our undergrad transcripts and all that. And and if they like us, we get in and it's kind of this holistic approach. And, And it's kind of this idea that, oh, how good are you as a candidate, the way we think about it for undergrad. Mm-hmm. I'd make the case that for most most master's programs or for um, even law school, it feels a lot like undergrad admissions. Sure, the criteria is a little bit different, but it's kind of this general sort of, hey, what does this profile look like overall? And what do we think of the test score? What do we think of the GPA? Now, PhD admissions, for the most part, is completely different because you you perform such a specialized function in academia as a PhD student where really your number one job is to be a research assistant or a teaching assistant, mm-hmm. depending on your program. And, and really whether or not you get into that PhD program depends primarily on, is there a professor in your target program that wants you to be working closely with them for the next five to eight years? Right, it's almost like hiring. It is, it is much more like hiring. So as a mm-hmm. PhD student, and I understood this beforehand, but not as deeply as I wished I, I did by my second year, I was like, oh, I didn't fully understand what this meant. I knew I'd be working 20 hours a week for the department doing research and occasionally teaching, but I didn't really understand that that was kind of the dominant part of my life there, was doing right. research underneath the professor essentially as their underling. Mm. Yeah. And, and also, do you feel like it was, 
I mean, you say it was sort of the majority of what you were doing. Do you feel like it was more than 20 hours or you feel like more just like it was just the majority of the total time? I, it's not to say that it was a majority of the total time. I, I think it really was the heart of what we were there to do was it was yeah. conducting research, apprenticing under professor or multiple professors, learning how they mm-hmm. did research and doing a lot of their dirty work for them. And depending right. on your exact program and the exact relationship you you have with the professors, for a lot of people I know in different fields, certainly in some of the natural sciences, you know, they, they live in the lab and they spend hour after hour after hour doing research in there. And some of it's their own research, but it's usually piggybacking off of a professor's work. So I, I would say that depending on the program, it might be the case that the majority of your time is spent doing that research, you know, working mm-hmm. for the department essentially. But even if it isn't, the majority, it's going to be a, a very large chunk of your time, but it might be kind of the heart of what you're doing, the heart of what you're evaluated on, and really kind of the heart of where the department's trying to take you. Right. Interesting. Okay. And essentially, I mean, when you're at one of these places, like you're kind of signing up almost for like an apprenticeship the way you'd have it at like a job where it's like, you're going to start by like cleaning all the tools and then you're going to <laughs> then you're going to move on to like cleaning the shop, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> there, depending on the department and the, the characters involved, yeah, sometimes it very much has that sort of feel where you start out doing the the dirty grunt work, whatever that might be in the department. And again, it varies widely from field to field. Um, mm-hmm. But there was certainly some of that for me where it's, well, we just wrote a 140 page report and somebody has got to do the proofreading and the formatting. And that is going to be the first year PhD student doing that. And if it takes a hundred hours, it takes a hundred hours. And mm-hmm. that's what the PhD student is, is there for. And I, I didn't resent that. <laughs> and at then all. you graduate to sophomore year and you're like, that guy's <laughs> going to do it now. Not me. <laughs> exactly. There's some of that going on. And again, it's going to depend on the, the personalities involved. Um, I never minded doing that stuff. Somebody had to do it. Right. And, and I was okay with being the junior guy my first year who did some of that work as long as I got to participate meaningfully in the discussions about where the research was going. Right. The thing I would add about that culture, though, where the this, the dominant part of your experience as a PhD student is conducting research under some professor's wing, mm-hmm. is that in corners of academia, and, and maybe this is dominant, maybe this is just pockets, I, I tend to think this is fairly common, is professors often think of their PhD students as kind of these mini-me's, right? So these are people mm-hmm. that I'm taking under my wing, this is my apprentice, this is, this is my protege. And what I didn't understand that I really wish this one, I really wish somebody had explained to me before my PhD, that for the rest of your career, if you stay in academia, you mm-hmm. and your advisor, your PhD advisor will be inextricably linked. So when I started going to academic conferences in my field and, and I was studying education policy, quantitative analysis, psychometrics, which is the, the science underneath standardized testing. And mm-hmm. in particular, when I went to the psychometrics conference, my advisor's name was stamped to my forehead. It was like, oh, who are you? Oh, you're Derek Briggs student. And right. that was always kind of, certainly as a PhD student, that was always, oh, you're, you're so-and-so student. But what I found fascinating is that persists throughout. So that was still the case for my advisor who was in his 40s and had been a full professor for a decade, is that he was still seen as Mark Wilson's student. And with, with no irony whatsoever, one day in, in class, my advisor put an academic family tree um, on a slide during a lecture and said, hey, um, here's somebody who's a really big deal. We're going to study this model um, produced by this guy named Georg Rosh. And you, my children, are the academic great-grandchildren of Georg Rosh because Georg Rosh 
his student was, <laughs> and I forget who exactly a student was, and, and his student was Mark Wilson, and his student was me, and you're my student, so you're the academic great-grandchildren this lineage. And there's a lot of that thinking in academia. I, I have a lot of friends in other fields that have experienced very similar things. So the dominant thing to be aware of in admissions as you apply to a PhD program is you mm -hmm. will get in if somebody wants you to be their academic protege. And if they want to work right. with you in research for the next five to eight years and be connected to you for the rest of your careers, you will get in. And the GRE is very, very secondary. If nobody wants to work with you, good luck. It doesn't matter what your GRE score is if everybody thinks you're a pariah for whatever reason. Right. But when it comes to the GRE and also just like, I think, putting your best foot forward in these conversations, you know, like I've, I have some friends that have basically gotten PhD programs because they knew a guy who knew a guy who needed somebody and they were smart and they were driven. And so it was like, oh, I have a great person for you kind of thing. Um, but I, I still think you need to like check the boxes to an extent. Right. And so that's where kind of, I think the GRE needs to be in, in, this, in particular with PhD admissions, a box that you do not fail to check. I think that's, right? I think that's spot on Tyler. And I think yeah. what it means to check that box obviously is going to vary quite a bit from field to field. So if you're studying mm -hmm. something quantitative, so um, I, I've spent a lot of time in, in economics departments. That was my undergrad. I've, I've, you know, TA classes in econ. A lot of friends who were econ PhD students took a lot of classes alongside those guys. <clears throat> in, in a lot of departments, what, what they would tell me is if you don't get a perfect score on the GRE quant, you are not getting into this program. That might be an exaggeration, but I've heard it said that stridently in certain universities and econ departments, because obviously you're going to do a pile of math. Your quant score better be really, really good. Right. And the same might be true. I'm not sure how, I don't, I'm not sure that it is ever this rigid, but if you're studying, let's say you're working on a PhD in comparative literature, they should be pretty darn good on that, that uh, verbal section of the GRE. I don't know if there's anybody who's so rigid that they're going to demand a perfect score on verbal because it's really, really hard to do. But obviously mm -hmm. you need to check that box if, if you're doing a, a program where you're going to be doing a ton of reading and it's something that's literature culturally based. Well, great. That better be a high verbal score, high quant score in a quantitative field. And if your field's kind of neither, one of the things I've seen is that for something like, um, I have a friend who's getting a, a PhD in, in um, I think, marine biology, and she's studying a very, very specific thing, found the professor at Stanford who's studying this very specific thing with her. Her GRE score wasn't very good because it, it's really hard to see why it matters. She's not going to be doing the kind of math you see on the GRE. She's not going right. to be doing a lot of sophisticated writing. She's a fantastic researcher and thinker. And that's all that really matters. There wasn't a whole lot of boxes to check. She scored right around a 150 on both. Good enough because there's not really a drive to need those quant skills or really advanced verbal skills. So if that's the case, great. Get something that's eh, around the median and you can probably get away with it. Interesting. That's Because I was actually about to ask that as kind of a follow-up question. It's like, essentially, is there just like sort of a general kind of minimum percentile, let's say, that you would recommend anybody hit because, you know, they just want to know that you're smart, kind of, <laughs> or something like that. But it sounds like not really. Or that it's, you know, maybe you just need to be kind of above the national median or things like that. Yeah, it's a great question, Tyler. I, I feel strongly, and I think we might have talked about this on a different episode of this podcast, that I, I feel strongly about 
the idea that people respond around numbers. So psychology plays a huge role in admissions, whether people realize it or not. Mm-hmm. And just the way the jury is scaled, I, I think if somebody's applying for a competitive PhD program, and let's say that it isn't particularly quantitative and isn't particularly literary or whatever, there's there's no compelling reason why you need a super high score on either quant or verbal. I'd say, yeah, I'm going to feel a lot better about your odds if you get above a 150 on both sections, just because then somebody looks at it and goes, okay, they're above average on both. Let's move on here. Mm-hmm. If, if it's a super competitive program, maybe we can start to make the case for 160 as a key threshold. 170 is perfect on the GRE. 150 is average. 160 is this nice round number in the middle. People seem to think that it divides average from very, very good mm-hmm. or good to great. So if you're applying to a super competitive program, maybe it's good to cross that threshold. But honestly, I think most people who who do selections for PhD programs, they're willing to have that conversation with you. If you can build that relationship with somebody that you want to do research with for the next five to eight years and have an ongoing relationship with beyond that, and you really form that relationship before you apply, you can probably ask them, how much do you guys care about the GRE? What matters to you here? And if they say, hey, we don't really care. I've, I've heard plenty of people who are involved in admissions for PhD programs say that straight out to their applicants. We don't care. You're required to take it because the university requires it. We don't care what you get. That can happen. Usually they'll be fairly honest about it once you establish that relationship, because if they want you there, if they mm-hmm. want to hire you as their research assistant, they will hire you and they're going to tell you exactly what they need on the GRE. So don't be afraid to ask. And it's not usually how it works for something like law school or a large, you know, large scale master's program, but for the PhD programs, it's totally acceptable to ask and don't assume that you need some super high score, because if you don't, then maybe your time is better spent elsewhere, working on other parts of your application and and not studying like crazy if they tell you they don't really care. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And it's, and like you said, it's a little counterintuitive too, because I feel like, (laughs) you know, one, you kind of assume since PhDs are kind of the, the top of the mountain when it comes to academia, that they, everyone would require a high score. And if you don't need a high score, then that's a big weight off your shoulders. And then number two is that you can ask, which is something that I would not have assumed. <laughs> but I think that you're right. It's like PhDs kind of exist in their own little universe where it's really, you know, they have to follow kind of like the law, quote unquote, of their school, but they don't really care about it. They just care about what they're doing. And the skill sets, by the time you get so specialized that you're doing a PhD, the things that matter are, are often so narrow and so specialized that if you're amazing at researching a certain kind of frog and that's what your advisor does, how much does it really matter if you can fill in little bubbles on the GRE? So yeah. if the, the program doesn't care, don't stress about it. Cool. Thank you so much, Charles. That was really helpful. And this has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Charles Bibelos from GMAT Ninja. And Achievable has a great online GRE course that you can try for free at achievable.me. And if you like it, use the code podcast to get 10% off.